0: And I my I was just my I was just blown away. I'm like, Are you kidding me? He said, Well three of us have been together, a couple of know, but never all four of us since the day we picked the swoosh. And I got goosebumps, you know, and I was just like, Holy shit. Welcome to Plan Conversations,
1: the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, head of content strategy at Plan Co. and joining me are Brandon Hutchison and Jason McKinney, the founder and senior designer of PlanCo. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform... Today
2: we embark on an extraordinary journey into the insane history of Nike. From Phil Knight's memoir, Shoe Dog, to the Department of Nike Archives, we discuss the making of Nike's brand DNA. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce the maestro of Nike history, the retired Nike historian and captivating storyteller, Scott Rings Perhaps Scott's most renowned achievement, the Department of Nike Archives, is more than just a collection of old sneakers. It's the sacred ground where the foundations in Nike were laid, where innovation, design and storytelling converge to capture the essence of a product and set the stage for unparalleled company growth. Join us as Scott relays first-hand accounts of some pivotal moments in the company's history. Whether you're an avid sneaker collector, a design enthusiast, or simply a fan of inspiring success stories, this episode with Scott is bound to leave you in awe.
1: Scott, it's so great to have you on the show today. You have a career that, uh, you know, started before Nike, but at Nike spanned three decades across retail marketing, sports marketing, U.S., global communications. And you originated the historian role, the official Nike historian role in 2005 uh, until your retirement uh, about 16 years later, um, but you are the foremost expert on Nike history to the point where you were one of the most valuable sources of information for Phil Knight when he was writing his book, Shoe Dog. Let's back up a little bit and, and, and tell us, how did your Nike journey start and, and how did it evolve through four different departments across three decades and, and to where, where you found yourself in that historian role?
0: Happy to. It it was almost a continuum in in some ways, right? So I start as essentially created a new position, never existed before marketing and and, uh, retail uh, marketing and PR for uh, events at Nike Town Stores. And then the two stores became three with Atlanta, and then four with Orange County, and then I think fifth was Seattle. And I was like, okay, this is fun. I like new cities, but this is becoming a little bit of the same thing just repeated in different cities and it wasn't really, I mean, I liked doing the athlete events and the in-store events were crazy getting John McEnroe or Nolan Ryan or, you know, Scotty Pippen to come into one of the stores and do an event was super fun, but it was not the main part of my job. So I, uh, as I started to get to know more people in sports marketing because they would get the athletes for me into the stores, I started pitching the idea of centralizing the athlete appearance process so instead of going you it, it, basically what it was if let's say in chicago if i wanted an athlete i had to go to the baseball team first and they would come to me and say we can't get a cub or a, red, a white sock so i'd have to then go to the football team and i'd say and i'm talking about nike's football pro team, not not the teams themselves and they would try to get me a chicago bear and then they couldn't then it was a bull and i said this is crazy i should just be able to go to one place and say i need an athlete in the store on such and such a date get one or can i please have one and I pitched the idea to the sports marketing director that it'd be centralized. And a few weeks later, a couple months later, uh, he tells me that they got the headcount approved and, and do I want to do the job. I said, <laughs> okay, yes, I do. So I ended up doing that for about three years through the Atlanta Olympics in 96, I had a staff of three people. And we, that's what we would do. We would, we, would, we would get athletes for sales meetings. We'd get athletes to, um, uh, you know, retail store openings of a uh, Dick's Sporting Goods or Footlocker or whatever. Uh, you know things, Nike events, ad shoots, things like that. And again, that was fun. Uh, but then it folded into a new group called Athlete Relations, and and it started moving in more into like agency type of work. And they wanted to represent agents or represent athletes that way. And I, that's not really what I wanted to do. And at that same time, there was a, a change in the PR department, and a new director came in. Uh, this is in '97, and he and I were had already met. We we're becoming we we're pretty good friends, and it was essentially my door opening to getting into public relations at Nike, which is what I had wanted to do since I graduated from college. So eight years after I graduated from college and I sent my first application and I ended up moving into the PR department, but I loved doing that. I mean, I loved working for Nike PR Nike US PR. Uh, and it was great. There was a ton of stuff going on in the late nineties, good and some bad with labor issues, et cetera. But the, there was a lot of great product stuff and athlete stuff. And I eventually got elevated into a new role that was, global communication so the us was somewhat the leading lead dog for the pr around the world but they they decided to elevate about three or four of us into this global role and what came with that was access to phil knight and mark parker and, and our senior leaders so i was responsible for doing the uh, interviews setting up interviews for phil with different magazines and publications and the more i would listen to and sit in on these in, a, in these interviews the more i would hear drifting from one telling of a story to another, you know, I, he paid $40 for the swoosh, he paid $50 for the swoosh, he paid $75 for the swoosh. He was just kind of pulling <laughs> it out of his back pocket. And I would make little notes and, uh, and you know, it grew over time. And I, I, one day I remarked to a friend, I said, you know, Nike's a really amazing storytelling company, but it's all oral. It's all, did you hear what Nelson said? Or I heard, oh my God, I heard this amazing story from Tinker. But this wasn't being written down, much mm. less corroborated, you know, or, or, or built on, uh, it was one person's musings or recollections. And I, I kept saying, well, this is a we're, we're at risk here. I mean, every time somebody retires or worse, uh, their, their stories go with them out the mm. door, you know, and you and we, we shouldn't allow this to happen. So I'll I'll readers digest a little bit, so essentially conversations happen, talking to the right folks. Uh, next thing I know, I'm talking to Nelson Ferris, who's the longest tenured employee at the company. He's been there now almost 51 years. And Nelson is afraid of no man or woman. So he basically, when I told him my, my thing, I said, I want to run this up through the, through the hierarchy. And Nike goes, no, let's just go talk to Phil. I said, no, 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 no. I, got, I got to talk to my boss. I got, you know, I got to talk to the director of the archives. He goes, no, no, let's just talk to Phil. And I said, no, Nelson, I can't. And next thing I know, I get a call from him saying, we're having lunch with Phil tomorrow have your have your proposal ready uh, it's like oh my god wow. so i put this I, I had a proposal already semi-baked so that night i was like ah you know doing working hard mm-hmm. to get it done uh again with a friend who was a design person that helped me a, a ton and the next day i sat down with lunch and pitched my idea to phil and he uh he mulled it over and he, he didn't disagree with it but he, he basically said that what i wanted to do was more than one person it was like six people and it'd be a budget of three million dollars and there was like this pregnant pause and he looks at me and goes, and you're not going to get that. So I was like, ah, damn. But he goes, let me think about this. Let me think about this. So a, few, a couple of months later, I get a call from the director of the archives. And he says, uh, I guess you've been talking to Phil. And I'm like, oh, God. I was <laughs> thinking I was going to get in trouble. And he said, yeah, uh, you mentioned the conversation and the whole idea of being somebody to capture the Yankee history. And uh, I've got a headcount for it. Are you interested? I, I was just like, I had to you know, like, take the phone away from my ear. Like, wait, what? And so that was in 2004. <laughs> But at that same time, Phil was stepping down as CEO, and because I was his PR person, I was asked to stay on uh, through the end of 2004. So I, I did mostly Phil's PR and then tried to get some of the archival stuff up, and then once he retired, or stepped down in, in December of four, then I, then I w- moved into the role in 2005 and did that for the next 16 years. And when I retired, I had a staff of seven. So Phil is spot on. I I did not have a $3 million budget, however. That never to fruition. But I did have a staff (laughs) of seven. So Phil's kind of spooky that way. We'd like
1: to take a moment to remind you that Play and Conversations is brought to you by Play and Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play and Co. for a design project, be sure to visit PlayandCo.com. Thank goodness you did get that though, because you know, yeah. so much of the Nike culture that we know of as today is so deeply rooted in those stories that, as you said, uh, might have been lost with people as they retire or, or move on. In terms of like the original pitch, how was Phil seeing value in in what a historian might do in terms of preserving some brand DNA or? Uh, as a component of, of culture.
0: Well, in a, in a perverse sort of way, I actually had some bad uh, things happen around Nike that helped me. I mean, it was um, first the worst was that Phil Knight's son, Matthew, had passed away in a, mm. in a scuba diving accident. And Jeff Johnson had been diagnosed with, or, or excuse me, had a stroke, was, was, was recovering from, but he had a stroke. Jeff Hollister was diagnosed with cancer. So it was like mortality was, just all of a sudden yeah. jumping up right and left and reminding us all that, you know, we're, as, as they once said, we're all day to day, you know, and, um, you know, Bill Bowerman had passed away in, in 1999, you know, and so it was basically real, real life reinforcement of what my message was, is if we don't capture these stories now, at some point, we won't be able to anymore, and so I got a weird boost from karma or whatever uh, that, that that basically reinforced that I wasn't just doing the sky is falling, but you know people are hmm. essentially no longer available to us because of uh, passing. Or in like Bill Dellinger's case, the coach at the at the University of Oregon, he had a massive stroke and he was able to really not able to communicate. He's still not very uh, able to communicate. All that all those amazing stories are locked in in his hmm. head. So. That all was working in my favor again. I, I hate to say that, but it, it was—it was just the truth. And then again, Phil was planning. I didn't know it at that time. I don't think when I first pitched him that he was planning on sitting down. But I think he realized that, um, you know, this, these are these are inflection points. These are these are quantum moments within the company. And Phil wasn't going anywhere. But it still meant that the world was the Nike world was going to change. And and keeping the stories, knowing who Phil Knight is, knowing who Bill was. Was again. This five years have gone now by since, since Bill died, um, and I did I, I did some research and I found out from the HR department that I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head now, but I, I said something like, uh, of the f- X, if, if there's hundred percent of all employees, Nike employees, that seventy six percent have all been hired since Bill Bowerman died, or never knew Bill Bowerman as the co-founder. I mean, a, kind of mind blowing stats, you know, skewed a little bit by the, all the retail employees because they're usually younger and, and don't glasses on, but it was still pretty stark you know to realize yeah. that that there aren't a lot of people that and, and it becomes less every day that knew bill bowerman who talked to bill bowerman who you know had a chance to to be inspired by him directly
3: can, yes, can maybe just for the sake of the audience just explain in a nutshell the significance of bill bowerman uh, to nike because sure. he was huge right he was pivotal
0: he and phil knight were co-founders of the company he was phil knight's uh track coach at the university of oregon and uh the, well he was there from phil bill was there from the 1948 to 1973 and then for phil's four years in the late 50s and bill was also a an inveterate uh tinkerer and he he would he'd mess around with uh, uh spikes and and everything you know even an early form of gatorade you know he actually was messing around with the electrolyte replacement before gatorade um, tasted <laughs> terrible when I was told, but I mean, he was always trying to find ways to give his athletes at the University of Oregon uh, uh, the, the best chance to succeed. And that also meant messing around with running shoes. And he had some ideas and he would write letters to Adi Dossler and to some of the other uh, main company. Or that's Adidas, the founder of Adidas. And, and uh, he would say, I'd, I'd like to buy my shoes directly from your company and save the, the markup. And I'd also have some design ideas I'd like to share with you. And invariably, everybody, every audience and all the others would respond with, here's the name of our distributor in the United States. And they wouldn't say anything about the design idea. So that was frustrating to Bill. So Phil Knight is one of the, the runners that who's wearing shoes that Bill had messed around with. So Phil knew that he did this. So in 62, when Phil had graduated from Stanford University after he got his master's, he'd written an, a, a thesis about... Uh, an, about entre, in an entrepreneurial class on how Japanese running shoes, or the Japanese could make running shoes that could compete with German running shoes, uh, similar to had the, the camera explosion had happened, and he pitched the idea to a company in Japan. And miraculously, they agreed to let him be the distributor, and he came. Phil came back to the United States wanting to get Bill's. Um, endorsement basically and and make you know they sell shoes to him at cost but he wanted his endorsement because at that time the University of Oregon had just won its first NCAA uh, team track title and Bill but so again Phil doesn't know this was comes comes out in shoe dog as well Phil doesn't know anything about this backstory about Bill's eight or nine year frustration about not being able to get anybody listen to him so he Bill gets these shoes and yeah he sees like they're interesting shoes but his first thing his first thought is Oh, my gosh, I have an, an outlet now or a connection now to get to a footwear manufacturer. Yeah, and he, so he sends a note back to, to Bill, I mean, pardon me, to Phil and says, cut me in as a partner and let's talk. That was not that nowhere on, on Phil Knight's radar, nowhere on his radar to become a partner. Uh, so, these, what I liked about, again, when I first got in the DNA and, and the historian role was the backstory, right? I mean, everybody, everybody knows that's the whole chocolate and peanut butter, oh, Reese's peanut butter cups, uh, you know, but I mean, but there's the whole story behind why Bill was motivated in certain ways and why Phil was motivated in certain ways and how all of these factors had to come together before they could then themselves come together and become partners. So, those are the, were the real storytelling nuggets and opportunities are and that's what i was able to focus on during my my time
1: just uh for further context for for anybody that hasn't been on the nike uh hq campus in beaverton oregon there's a whole display that has some of the original uh you know waffle maker uh and artifacts that tell the story and it's it's like once you see this in a in a visual timeline with the actual artifacts that made it happen you can sort of look at any nike shoe innovation today uh and connect it all the way back to Mm-hmm. that waffle iron and the innovations that were made. So it's such a strong component of brand DNA. Speaking of artifacts, Scott, what other artifacts do you think have been some of the strongest in telling the Nike heritage story over the years? I mean, we can't uh, deny the importance of, you know, you know, Michael Jordan and the Jordan brand, but what what would you say are a few of the most pivotal moments that helped reinforce that brand DNA?
0: Well, I think, it was, again, different groups come to to DNA. That's, that's, again, for those who don't know, it's the Department of Nike Archives. I, I will take credit for that acronym. I was very proud of that one because um, before that was called just records and archives or archives and records or something, which, again, accurate but kind of boring. So uh, DNA was purposefully named in that way because uh, we wanted to remind people that this is literally in the atomic, you know, subatomic level within our system to be creative, to be designer and so but the but dna itself supports the entire company right so marketing people came to us uh, but footwear designers all, all manner of different people and and different people come for different reasons right designers a 27 28 year old designer wants to know all about what the process was that led to air force 1 or how did how did the first jordan come along or how you know the first air the air trainer the cross training and they want to see sketches and they want to see, they want to get in Tinker Hatfield's mind. They want to understand what Eric Avar was thinking, you know, and, and, and essentially either replicate or, or maybe just create their own process. And so those things are gold, right? And thankfully, a lot of our early designers kept their uh, creations and, and we, over, we over time have been able to uh, matriculate them into the archives, scan them you know and again make them available to any employee worldwide so uh i'm sort of around about answering your question simon but but that's that was the 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 genesis of the idea was to these things are valuable on their own but when you provide the context for them when you provide the story element of it then it becomes much more impactful you can look at a design you can see the Air Trainer design, and you can kind of look at what Tinker might have been, what was messing around in his head. But when you combine that with then Tinker, and we would sit down with Tinker Hatfield, and we would interview him, and we'd capture his musings, and we would talk to other des- designers and how they were impacted. You know, what the whole again the continuum—it's so much more uh, rich and much more meaningful for a young designer to immerse him or herself into that as opposed to just reading about it you know or just having somebody say oh yeah and then tinker did this but actually hearing tinker and then coming into the archives and and to these rooms that we have set up uh, that are literally immersive they're they're, we call them rig rooms and they're they're i mean it's like you you sit in the middle of it and you could turn in 360 degrees and see nothing but nike basketball or nothing but jordan or whatever your the topic was in that room and it is so powerful Right. I mean, it just it just it, it just pulls stories out of people and they can immediately while they're talking that they can say and like that shoe there and they can go over to the wall and bring it over. And so suddenly you're getting a much more evocative recounting that's on camera and being captured forever. You know, so the, these, all these things were coming together. This isn't what we were, I was doing day one when I started the historian role. But this is where we evolved as we started learning more about what the company wanted. Right. I mean. We, we would keep things and we would store things, but we didn't really have them cataloged deeply with some stories and, and, the, and the background that really made them pop.
4: Yeah, that's I find that so interesting. Uh, in the intro, we didn't talk about our backgrounds, but I spent three years as an innovation designer at, at Adidas and I have been into the, the archives back in and uh, heard so. And they don't come with the stories. Um, you have to kind of no. interpret. Not not every one of them, but it, I feel like Adidas is really driven off of like the objects that have been created, and that interpretation of how it got there is often left up to the imagination. And I I find that that's possibly where Adidas like goes through its waves of innovation, and then they try to they they try to replicate designing the same outcome and not designing the process or the space that got them that outcome and I think that that sounds like it may be a a big differentiator in kind of what the work that Mm. you did and how that opens up the that understanding of what led to these results rather than trying to match the impact of an object and its uh, its uh, impact on the business
0: well right after I found out I had this position so the next time I got a chance to to see Phil um, you know, I thanked him, of course. And, uh, and then we were talking a little bit and I said, I, I want to make sure that I have the freedom to interview and talk about the entire Nike history. And he said, what do you, what, you know, can you give me an example? And I said, Rob Strasser, Peter Moore, um, early Nike executives who were instrumental to Nike Nike's success, but who mm-hmm. also left uh, and, and then there's those two gentlemen's cases started working with Adidas America. Yeah. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and Phil didn't even flinch about it. He just said, absolutely. Rob and Peter's contributions to this company are terribly important. They need, their stories need to be part of what we're doing. And I thought, okay, great. Awesome. I now have a, I now have a mandate for Mr. Knight and which I then extrapolated to mean that we can cover our failures. We need to cover yeah. the warts, the hits. We call it the hits and the misses, right? We can't. We're not doing Nike any, any service by just talking about, oh, we're so great. Oh, look at this shoe. This is so cool. You know, and the greatest example of that is the Michael Johnson gold shoe in the 1996 Olympics, right? Mm. A lot of people remember that. It's the imagery, iconic. I mean, he was on every magazine cover, whether it was you know, Sports Illustrated or Good Housekeeping. I mean, it seemed like he was everywhere with the gold shoes because it's kind of ballsy, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you can't wear gold shoes and finish sixth. You, you know, can't wait gold
3: shoes and finish second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's true.
0: So, so all this, that, but that's the, that's the end. That's the tailpipe. That's the story that people know. But it came about because of a humongous, terrible error that Nike made in 1993 at the World Championship Games where Quincy Watts is coming around the, the final uh, turn on, the, I think, the 400 meter, and his shoe delaminated and yeah. it started flapping. And, and he finished, I think, fourth. You know, instead of first or second or however, you know, and that was three years before the gold shoe. And the only reason the gold shoes really came about was because of how Nike just forensic the hell out of that. It's like, how did this happen? How what, what this can't happen again? And so there was a two year period where there was an elite group of designers brought together to essentially focus on creating the best of the best shoes. And, and apparel, but a shoe for Olympians, for the, you know, the, the highest level of, in whatever sport. And that led to the gold shoes. So to me, as a young, if I were telling a young person within the company that I would want them to know that whole story. Otherwise, it just looks like, oh, Nike, man, they just know how to do shit, right? I mean, yeah, gold shoe, Michael Johnson wins, you know, uh, you, it's almost like, to me, it's like, personally, like I could never relate to Michael Jordan because he's amazing and I'm not. You know, and but I, then I look at like John Stockton, who's amazing, but he's like six foot one. You know, I look a lot like—I mean, I did—I and I gained some weight then. But I mean, so we—you we, know—we're very similar. So when I see him play, I'm like, I can sort of—I can sort of project like that could be me. I've never looked at Mark Michael Jordan or Charles Barkley and those guys and said that could be me. So I wanted to—I don't want to say—it's not dehuman. I wanted to—I want to demystify. I wanted to to, to, yeah. to non deify whatever that is the our designers because they're. They make mistakes. Tinker Hatfields made mistakes. You know, I mean, if, if, you, if you create such a pedestal for them, then no designer coming in will ever feel like they can really be successful because, like, well, I could never do that. I mean, look what Bill Baerman used to do. I mean, I, so to me it was really important to show that, that everyone has multiple sides and people are human and don't kick yourself if you make them. I mean, hell, mm. Quincy mm. Watts' shoe delaminated. No one was fired. A lot of people probably had some uncomfortable <laughs> conversations on the phone, but it was more of like, we can't have this happen again, guys. Let's figure this out. Much better reaction than dart throwing and, and name calling and firings, you know? So that's what I loved about it. And that's why I like telling that story because that to me makes Nike more human and it, it gives people more of a, a feeling that it's okay to be human and not try to cover things up and, and do bravado and that kind of stuff that never ends well.
3: Um, Scott, one of the things I really loved in the book, Shoe Dog, I think it was page three. It was like one of the the, the first things that Phil Knight observed, um, having been a U of O grad, master's of business from Stanford, served in the U.S. Army for a year. So this is like the traditional trajectory in the 60s of growing into adulthood, right, as a young man. And then he, he was kind of wrestling with some things, too. He wanted to see the world. So he traveled around the world when no one else did took a ballsy move to start his own shoe company. But the whole spirit around that was he he kind of had this epiphany. He says he has this epiphany in 1962 or something on one foggy morning on a run that he wanted his whole life to be about play. And just listening to some of these stories that you're talking about and, um, you know, allowing people like the butt face summits, you know, people to talk shit to each other. Um, no one gets fired for stuffing up um, in culture of innovation and play. That's something that we really believe. I mean, if you hadn't picked it up already, play and conversations, play and co. Um, that's something that we we try to embrace ourselves. Um, do, do you feel like that that's part of the DNA, I guess, of the company there in terms of product development and building brand and culture?
0: I do. I think I think a lot of Phil's whatever you want to call it is is brain pattern or something i I feel like the nike zeitgeist or the nike nike is a lot of phil right i mean Mm -hmm. highly competitive but self-deprecating um you know confident and swaggery but not over i mean again justifiably you know i mean they're phil phil is an interesting character right i mean he he he's a brilliant man and he likes to be involved in what's going on, but he doesn't necessarily like to be in the front and the pinnacle. And, and you know, he, he likes to be in the room when stuff is happening. He likes, to, he likes to bring the pieces together, you know, even if he knows that some of them are a little oil and water and there's going to be some friction. And he, he, to him, it's kind of like, let's sit back and see what, what chemistry experiment comes from this. And, <laughs> and for the most part, thankfully for my stock portfolio and a lot of others, he's been successful. He's been able to figure out, <laughs> who are who are the right people to get together? What are the right circumstances? You know, like the the famous interview, face, from first, uh, the face first famous first conversation you had with Dan White. You know, I'm, I'm Phil Knight, and I don't I don't like advertising. You know, well, that's that's a really great icebreaker <laughs> with a guy who's the <laughs> head of an advertising agency or wishes to be wishes to be. But uh, but that's all that's Phil's way of, of testing, right? He he was waiting to see Dan's reaction. You know, I mean that he's he's very I don't know, sly. Maybe there. I mean Phil Phil's a very interesting. Uh, student of character and and he observes he's very observant of people and he he knows when to kind of throw a little bit of a wrench in to, to see what's see how people react and, and I think he then he, he learns a lot from the, what those people do and then it gives him ideas but also the, the other side of that coin is again in those early 60s and or the mid 60s and early 70s he would let Jeff Johnson and later other people, Figure their own stuff out. Phil didn't know how to run a a multinational footwear company. I mean, and I'm not putting him down. He just didn't. It wasn't wasn't his, you know, he he was trying to make stuff up as as, as well as everybody else. So a lot of times he told me when he didn't respond to Jeff's because he didn't know what to say, right? I mean, (laughs) it wasn't like he had this crystal ball like, well, Jeff, you need to increase this by 17%, you know. He was more like, I don't know, Jeff, you're there on the front lines in Los Angeles. What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing this. Well, then that probably that's a good idea. Call me when, you know, no, don't call me, write me, you know, when you have something more. And there are a lot of times some of those letters uh, that I used to go through were very, eye-opening right i mean there, there's one where they're basically phil and jeff are writing each other saying is this is this it is this all And this is like 1966 you know i mean the company's only really two years old and and they're mm. musing they're musing about what what would be next and one of them could get a job in san francisco and the other might do this and so they they were there was no uh assuredness back in even into the early 70s that this was anything going to be more than a a lark you know or not yeah. a lark because they were they were invested in it but it wasn't a there was no no guarantee it was gonna be successful. And it really, until Phil started looking back and learned about Tom Sumeragi and the invoice sh- sh- shenanigans and learned about some of the things that were going on, that he realized that, that this was such an amazing set of tumblers that all individually clicked yeah. into place or it would have fallen apart, you know? Yeah. And, and, and instead of saying, well, oh, but we knew what we were doing, he was totally cool which is saying, damn, we got lucky, you know? Yeah. So you can't, <laughs> so I think some people looked at Shoe Dog, maybe were a little disappointed because it didn't provide this recipe. advice. <laughs> right, yeah. here's, you know, stir in this, mix a little bit of that, a pinch of this, and voila, you're a successful company. It was more of like, well, shit! <laughs> I mean, I thought that was going to work, and, and here's yeah, how we got our,
3: there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. We
0: hired a, we hired an anthropology major, and he turned out to be an, a tremendous shoe salesman. You know, I mean, it's like who, who yeah. would, would think of this kind of stuff? So, yeah. uh, again, it was very it was very pleasing, a very pleasant time to work with him on that, and not listen to pontification or not listen to him. Yeah, um, you know, rewrite history to be much more kind uh, to the to the, the messiness that was pretty much mm. the 1960s. And for the people listening, Jeff Johnson
3: was employee
0: number one, right? So He was full-time employee number one. There were some retail people in the store, but he was the first full-time person.
3: Yeah, and so his first order of command was to set up the first retail store. Am I right, in L.A.? Uh, was, yes
0: and, and he set it up on pico boulevard in uh in santa monica i think it was uh, uh yeah, yeah. And it was all basically he just went to phil and said i can't keep having people show up in my my apartment all times the day and night looking <laughs> for shoes i think at that time he was newly married so i'm sure his wife was super thrilled about somebody some runners just going you know is jeff here you know so he he said if i can do a certain x amount of business they both i say x because they they have disagreed forever and i've never been able to find out what the actual number is but um if they could reach a certain threshold that of sales that he would that, that Phil would agree to let him open up a, a, a place. And the funny mm-hmm. thing was, Phil says, I think in the book, and he, you know, he said to me a few times, he goes, I gave him some number that was so outrageous. I, I knew he wouldn't make it a god damn. That's it I right. did. Yeah. And so so he was backed into a corner and he had, you know, so that, yeah. So Jeff started the first retail store. He used to take the photographs of uh, this, the product that he would create the first sales brochures. He'd create the first uh, print ads. He, he did the first R&D facility. In, in Exeter, New Hampshire. I mean, he is, he is the headwater. He is like the first person in the positions of so many departments at Nike. It's, it's almost amazing that he's not more well-known. Um, yeah. I mean, he is well-known in our industry, but Jeff Johnson should, to me, be right up there with Phil Knight
4: and Bill Bowerman. Hmm. It's really interesting hearing the stories of like pitching proposals. I mean, like if I like I want to pitch you this and if I pull this off, like give me the green light. Um, I ended up having uh, coffee with Michael Bergman um, and he uh brought a couple proposals after our conversation that he was like, I know which box that's in, what down in his basement. And it was really interesting to see like the depth in those and him speaking about the moments where he pitched this up the chain and got Uh the green light and it. Turn, you know, uh, business into like a two billion dollar business um, just yeah. because he he provided like these are the steps I'm going to take and got uh, the vision together and and got the green light to go go build it and the space to get it done. That's it seems really unique uh, to yeah. maybe the Nike story. Well,
0: Bergie and I, I mean, we had similar, similar uh, things happen. And I know a few other folks that are like that too. And again, this is the 90s and the early zeros, but mostly the late 80s. I, I didn't start till 92, so I can only speak secondhand of, of the 80s. But in the 90s, it was such a ridiculous growth. Uh, era. Yeah. I mean, we, we went from a, a $3 billion and in change in 1990 or 91 to $9 billion in 1997 or 8, I think. Mm. So we tripled, we tripled the business in the span of about six or seven years. And first off, that's crazy. And secondly, yeah. it's, I think it's unprecedented. I don't know about every industry, but certainly pre- unprecedented in the footwear industry. And so the, the, the growth was so staggering that the hiring was crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, people were being hired right and left. And there was a wide open uh, feeling of bring your ideas. I mean, mm. no, 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 until Nike was or four billion dollars. No company had ever been four billion dollars in their industry, and there were no company that was five, no company that was six. You know, we were literally figuring it all out on our own. So you didn't, you couldn't have executives tell you like, well, no, that's not going to work because when I did that, because they didn't do it, right? So, so there was this uh, this mindset of if you've got a good idea. Tell me about it. Let's kick it around, you know? And so that, so like my SI, my, the, but essentially I was pitching an SID position, sports information director, which turned into the athlete appearance thing. But that was just a, to me, it was a problem. I had a solution. Hey, what do you think? You know, next thing I know, I've got a job, you know, and the same with the historian thing. There was, there was not really a problem. But there was a, an opportunity, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I, that's true with him. That's always been true within Nike people are encouraged to, to step forward if they have a better idea.
3: And uh, to me, just hearing going from $3 billion to $9 billion in the space of five years, the, the, the elephant in the room is, how do you maintain culture? How do you maintain yeah. a sense of identity when you're hiring all these new people? Because I've heard from friends who have started companies that have gone from like five people to 60 people in two years. And they say that, you know, the part of the soul of the company is lost. And so yeah I think one of the one of the advantages or one of the success points or is exactly what you've just said is that and ideas were encouraged, right? So if I come in as new blood, it's a great way for me to validate myself and to to maybe even create a pitch and to do my homework about the company and where I could add value. so that's that's kind of a nice uh, way to do it. Is there any other things that you saw in terms of the challenges with growth or um, or how Nike dealt with it?
0: Well, we, we certainly, as we grew, uh, like any corporation, you start getting more layers, You know, right? You used to be two layers away from the CEO, and now you're three, and then you're five. You <laughs> know, Pretty soon mm. you're like, who is our CEO again? I can't remember. I haven't met him. Um, and, you know, for example, again, when I was hired in 1992, the company had just turned 20. And the, the, literally the week after I started, there was a big 20th anniversary party on the brand-new Nike campus. And... Everyone was there. We could all fit on the Bo Jackson field, right? Because mm. there was, I think, I don't know, 2000 people. And so it was, it was crowded, but they, we were all there. Well, now we're 74,000 or something like that. And got I don't even know how many countries. So even even by the end of the 90s, um, the company picnic went away, right? Because we mm. now had 7,000 or 8,000 people. And you know, it was, you know, most of them had spouses or partners and some of them had children. And so it went from a, a fun little gathering to this gigantic I hate to use the word ordeal, but it was, it was I knew some of the people that put on the event and they're like, They're exhausted because that's a ton of people. So you now you can't do an all employee uh picnic. You you can't even do an all employee meeting. We had to start doing stuff on closed circuit because there was no venue large enough to have all of us in one place, not to mention the logistics. So yeah. Those are the things and again, I the reason I, I know a lot about this particular topic because I got asked about it all the time there were there were mm. um, Longer of the longer tooth employees have been around for a long time who would lament how the new people Didn't appreciate this that or the other thing and there were the new people who would be like Oh my god, if I have to hear one more story about how it used to be blah blah blah, you know And I straddled I straddled both worlds or all the worlds because I had to right? I had to be I had to find ways to be relevant to a 27 year old designer, but also uh, be able to stay in the world of, of a sixty-two-year-old product developer, right? Uh, and and so my advice to everyone was always the same. I said you you can't have you can't have a butt face uh, meeting mentality. You can't. I mean, to, again, to, for those who aren't familiar, butt faces essentially were department heads and VPs. There were about six or eight of them, and every six months or so, they would in almost every case completely change jobs. So you'd walk into the meeting as the VP of Apparel, and you'd walk out as the VP of Marketing whether or not you knew anything about marketing or apparel almost didn't matter. And part of that was to make sure that everyone in the company understood, literally and, literally and figuratively, the shoes that their other executives walked in. And also it was to bring in new ideas. And, and, and uh, you know, you can't, can you imagine, I mean, the, 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 the sheer size and volume, not to mention uh, chaos that it would create now to take, let's say there's, I don't know, let's say there's 400 VPs at Nike now, I have no idea, but let's say there's 400 all over the world. And every six months, they're all going to step once to the left, and now they're going to be responsible for something else. So it, there's absurd levels like that that you realize, okay, can't happen. But that trickles down in almost everything else. You can't have a holiday party, really, if, with your department, because you might have 270 people in your department. Who's got mm-hmm. the, the cost and, the, and the, the venue for a holiday party as much as that used, used to be? And maybe still is. Maybe people do smaller ones. Maybe I just wasn't invited. I don't know. But uh, that's, those are the things that get lost with with the, mm. the the volume as you get yeah. so my so getting back so my my advice my my one sentence advice was find your culture or define your culture and your and your your value of your culture within your department first or your group first your cubicles if that's where you then your department and then you know, you maybe go larger and if you get you enough pockets of people in whether it's in finance or marketing or it doesn't matter but if they all embrace the teamwork, they all embrace authenticity, competition, you know, the, they embrace all the things that Nike has on a macro level has always espoused and they call them yeah. the maxims. There's been 11, there's been five, there's been six. They, we always try to redefine, but it still comes down to teamwork, performance, uh, authenticity. Again, the, the, the names change, but the, the, the central core is the same. If you can make that relevant within your five team or five person team or your 10 person team, and then other groups are doing the same thing, then it'll spread, right? And so yeah, you, yeah. You, won't, you won't be able to do what was in the 90s. It's impossible. You, you can't all fit on the, on the veranda of the Joan Benoit Samuelson uh, restaurant and, and all have a beer. You just can't. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if your team does that and they meet with another team, then you can do it on a micro level, and hopefully it grows. Because just having the senior level, senior leader people say, do this, do that doesn't work i mean you, you you can't legislate culture right you just can't no. yeah. yeah it has to be organic and it has to i think well ideally i think it, it becomes like both ways right the, the the upper level espouse it and live it and 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 uh demonstrate it and then the organic is that when the people i hate to say lower level but i mean when when people start coming up through that and, and embrace it and own it then when they become senior managers and they become directors they want to permeate that they want to spread that and that has to work in tandem, or else it's just it's just you know, a lot of folks right raising up, and then senior leadership kind of squashing it, or senior leadership telling people what to do, and lower level folks just like, nah, that sounds like a lot of work. Mm. <laughs> so it's again, that's to your, to a comment we made earlier. If it were easy, right, everybody yeah. would do it. If you could just if you could just make a shoe and an ad, and and a and a and, a, and then you could just like stir it, and all of a sudden, ha there's another Air Jordan. It's the reason why there's not a lot of Air Jordan success stories, right? Even with Nike, there's not a lot of. Uh, of things that have come along that have been replicating you know lebron there's a handful you know that's it's just not easy and the same thing's true for for his uh, corporate history and corporate culture it's just it's there's so many factors
4: it's pretty incredible to like imagine that type of growth because um i mean our team has kind of worked across the you know agencies different uh corporate environments startups and um at Play and co we're you know, we're trying to set the foundations of our culture and our way of operating and we are kind of feeling a a growth stage right now. So it's it's pretty wild to like, you know, try to learn something from Nike and apply that here. But I mean, those are the that that type of like lasting culture that uh, through growth provides clarity on how to operate when you're you're given the space to to, you know, bring answers or get the work done. Um, it's it's incredibly valuable to kind of get those insights from you. So thank you. Yeah,
3: yeah. Sure. And we're still working on our first uh, one billion dollar year, so that'll probably <laughs> be a year or two out. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> once, so, once we crack the okay. ceiling on one billion, we'll probably come back to you and ask for some more pointers on getting yeah. to nine.
0: <laughs> well, there's a letter in the archives. One of my favorite letters from I think it was sixty seven or sixty eight, and again, it's from Jeff. No, this is one of those rare ones from Phil to Jeff, and I don't have the letter that Jeff sent, weirdly, because I have almost all of them, but so I, I'm just gleaning by his response what the questions was, were, uh, but essentially it was like, you know, where, where are we going? What, what's our future? And in the letter, Phil, um, blue skies, he says, well, who knows, you know, maybe in 40 years, we'll be a, a, a million-dollar company with an office in Japan, right? So yeah. that was let's say this was 1966 or 7. So that would be 2006 or 7. We're way past a million dollars. We have offices all, you know, so again, that was Phil's vision in 1966 was to be a million dollar company with an office in Japan. And so I don't know what your where you are right now and what your 40 year plan is, but uh, it just shows you that, you know, some again, had he said in 1950 or 66 someday we'll be a 50 billion dollar company with offices all over the world, Jeff probably would have been like, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I love that letter. And, and so Phil, Phil, a lot when he would get asked about, not that letter specifically, but he'd say, well, did you ever imagine, reporters always say, well, could you ever imagine in the 60s that you Nike know, would be X billion or whatever? And his answer was always a wry little smile and he'd say, right on plan. Because it's so, I <laughs> and he, and he, and he it's He goes, well, no, it's absurd. How could we be on plan? I mean, there's no yeah. way we could be a plan like that. But yeah. again, that's what I liked yeah. about, the company was there it's it uh, almost daily you'd pinch yourself and go i can't i, I just spent you know twenty four hours in Los Angeles hanging out with uh Lindsay Davenport, you know the tennis player i was or I got to go to such and such and you're just like i, I foot locker, I got to go to slam fest in nineteen ninety five and like George Gervin and I are hanging out you know at at the bar I'm like you know this is crazy stuff you know so (laughs) nike was nike is and i was and is like that where you you have these opportunities that you think i couldn't in my wildest dreams have sat down and said someday i'm gonna hang out with tiger woods and tyra banks but i did you know i mean it's like it's just weird (laughs) now now i'm showing off sorry
3: no no (laughs) but by by all means Uh, i love it (laughs) A well-positioned, well-pointed show-off moment. Um, <laughs> but back to when you were talking about the culture thing too. Sorry, Simon. I don't want to backtrack too much. But I think one of the things I'm noticing on this call is I feel like you're you're beyond historian uh, to the to the company here. You're a little bit of a a cultural kind of um, uh, steward. Steward. Yeah. There you go. A cultural steward who uh you know Jason we met people at Boeing and Teague who had been in the company for decades and they kind of reached this l- level of seniority where they where they were just wise they had a lot of wisdom they had a lot of context they had they had a lot of knowledge to impart that the younger guys really wanted to and needed to soak up and th- i think that's I, c- I can imagine that's where your value is i hope that Nike keeps you on the hook to come back in and um, share those stories with people, but if they yeah, don't, you, they can. If yeah. they don't, they can um, listen to our podcast. Yeah.
4: <laughs> would when, when you share that story about the, like executives or directors switching units, it reminded me of uh, Teague, uh, which had like you know about two hundred people in an office, but every three months, they would uh, switch your desks just randomly. So I would get to sit next to like a new engineer and like one of the ones was one of the guys been there, worked on all of the, you know, all the closed out supersonic Mm -hmm. developments. And he, he, Mark Eakins would lean over and be like, yo, you want to see some crazy stuff? And I would get to learn about this history from people who had lived it and, and had these amazing stories that uh, weren't, weren't captured, but I have them now, which is super cool. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's really cool to hear how that was done. We don't have enough desks in one spot to do that, but someday. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we do a house swap, Jason. I come to Portland for <laughs>
3: six months, you come to Melbourne. Yeah, I think Jane will be okay with that. You were talking about that letter um, from Phil Knight to, to Jeff Johnson, Jones, Jeff Johnson, sorry, John Johnson, mm-hmm. um, about where he sees the company in four decades. I mean, if you imagine you were in Phil Knight's shoes right now,
0: where where do you see Nike evolving from here in the next one to two decades? The key, one of the key things that we've done from the very beginning of my historian role and then my staff, after that was I wanted to make sure that we didn't just capture stories for for the sake of academia, right? I mean, it's important, sure, but I wanted to make sure that the stories we were capturing and and then telling are relevant to today, maybe in a different maybe ways not even you fully fathom until you start telling them but i mean a great example is we don't make footwear in 2023 the way we did in 1978 or 79. so having a, an early footwear designer having bruce kilgore get up and talk about the process of creating air force one while academically and individually might be interesting it's not going to really impart any wisdom on a footwear designer because they just don't make shoes that way anymore but the design process the ethos the the who knows where that inspiration came from you know i i got i was inspired by a bumblebee you know or whatever i mean those those things are relevant to designers today so Mm. uh, i think nike was very uh thoughtful when it celebrated its 50th anniversary last year in 2022 there was a a certain amount of celebrating what had come what had passed what what, what what the first 50 years had brought but the lens was very clearly focused on and the next 50 even though you can't crystal ball and say this is what we'll do in 2042 (laughs) um they were making it very clear that whatever we do whatever nike does in the future will have an anchor or at least an inspiration from the past but we're not going to be bound by it you know we're going to we're going to go into the next thing whatever that thing may be um And I think that was that was done with incredible forethought that they didn't want to just be, oh, and then in 1993, we did this and in 1997, we opened this, you know, because that's that's you can find that out. And some people would find that interesting. But a 17 year old, 20 year old or or a future designer getting out of design school, probably not going to be thrilled to hear about how footwear was made in the 1960s. You know, so so that I don't know if that fully answers the question, but that that to me was always been where we we've been most successful, where we we. Acknowledge that we have a past and we have a history and we have a culture. But not just telling old stories to say that this is how things used to happen. I mean, Hershey yeah. bars used to be a dime. Okay, Grandpa, they're not a dime anymore. So what <laughs> am I going to do? With, what am I going to do with that information? Yeah. Right? I mean, what, what, what did gasoline used to be? 35 cents? Great. It's you know $4.59 now. So It's the old uh, Grandpa Simpson. Back in my day. <laughs> Right. And and again, every once in a while, you kind of want to hear that story, but for the most part, if you're trying to inspire a new generation, who's then in in turn trying to create product that inspires a new generation of consumers, what we did in the 1960s individually or specifically not relevant, Hmm. the design ethos, the design challenge, the the, the teamwork, again, all those things that are somewhat ephemeral, you can't really put a price tag or ROI on it. But they're valuable. That's what. That's where we dealt. That's that was our. That was our gold standard. Was where do we find the stories that are re- as resonant today yeah. as they were then, or they have a resonance today because we've made sure that we picked the right notes to pluck. You know, this is yeah. the. This is a story that will benefit
4: a, a young designer or a young yeah, consumer. It turns into a, in a call to action. You know, those it's those correct. ones can turn into those. Yep. Right, and that, that's where some brands fail,
0: and some, but some brands, they want to be dewy-eyed and they want to look back at their past, and, and maybe it's great to know that the, the peanut butter eating has been around since 1857. or what I mean, I, I, again, I'm not a peanut butter marketer, but uh, certain brands, that's more important for them, and we've always been very comfortable understanding that our, our consumer is young, um, usually young in age, but definitely young at heart and young in, in sport. Uh, in competition, so it doesn't really ring strongly with them. Just to talk about the old days it has yeah. to be a, a connectivity point.
3: Yeah, and wait, I, I, me, for I, for one, am grateful that you exist because the story <laughs> wouldn't be here. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, the Nike tick, and uh, it'd all be just some sort of enigmatic uh, symbol that, of which we all kind of build our own stories for, which is also fine. But I, I love hearing the facts so well, really right now, you guys, appreciate you, probably, you
0: probably want to get to your own breakfast lunch or dinner as well but i the, one of my all-time favorite moments it was when in 19, in 2010 or early 11 i can't remember off the top of my head the company the, the company was about ready to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the swoosh and the name nike those all came a year before the company itself uh, so it was 1971 and i got I, I learned that jeff johnson was coming in from new hampshire And Bob Waddell had retired and he moved to Bend, which is only about three hours from Portland. And it turned out he also was going to be in Portland. So I just thought, well, what the hell? Nothing ventured. So I reached out to uh, Phil Knight's assistant and I said, if there's any chance that Phil has time next Thursday, I said, Jeff's going to be here and Bob's going to be here. And she said, yeah, he's going to see them. Do you you want to get on a schedule? And I said, I'd love to. Well, then I got a hold of Carolyn Davidson, the woman who designed the swoosh. Yeah. Well, it turns out she was also available. So I did a quick recon with all four of them and I said all four of you're going to be in Portland can we please all come to the a studio and just I want to record your thoughts and amazingly they all agreed. So wow. I called I called this guy that does uh, some photography for me and I just said I need you and everybody you can get your hands on. I need like I want to, I'm going to pay for like five cameras and camera people. I'm going to have I want one camera on each of the four of them and then the fifth one establishing and I want, I'm going to I want to I ask him every question I can possibly think of about the Nike name and the swoosh. And we sat down, we were in there for two hours. And before we started, we got everybody all mic'd up and they're all laughing with each other and talking. And I, I just kind of, I took my clipboard and I, I just kind of looked at them all sternly and I said, okay, just for the record, no one is leaving this room until you all agree on how the swoosh and the name Nike came about. Because you are the four <laughs> people, you're the only four people on the planet who were there. And they all laughed, but I mean, I was, I was semi kidding, but so for the next hour and a half, almost two hours, we caught amazing stuff from these four. And they were, they kidded each other. They were like, it was like brother and sister and, and Bob and, and Jeff were you know, jibing each other and, and arguing, but good naturedly. It was amazing. And then as we're finishing up and we got all this stuff and I'm like, I'm like giddy, right? Thinking, oh my God, I have all this stuff to play with um phil or bob one of them says to me "He goes, that was really fun he goes you know this is the first time since the four of us were together in 1971 and picked the swoosh that we've all been together again and i my i was just my i was just blown away i'm like are you kidding me he said well three of us have been together a couple of you but never all four of us since the day we picked the swoosh and I got goosebumps, you know, and I was just like, holy shit.
1: If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo, or visit planco.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, keep playing, keep designing and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play and Conversations signing off.